This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. This episode is entitled Cuba, The Myth, The Reality, and The Coronavirus. Today, the Return to Order Moment turns its gaze upon Cuba. Since the rise of the coronavirus, the Cuban government, like that of communist China, has sent squads of doctors to other countries. Their goal is to increase their global influence. In the first article, Mr. Bernard Tuffin examines the role of Cuban doctors in the Republic of South Africa. Mr. Tuffin lives in South Africa, where he is a director of Family Action South Africa. His article is entitled, The Mysterious Arrival of Cuban Doctors in South Africa. It was originally published on www.tfp.org on May 13, 2020. Many South Africans were uneasy with the news of Cuban doctors arriving in the country to help treat COVID-19 patients. The 213-person team alighted at the Waterkloof Air Base in Pretoria to a show of support normally reserved for visiting heads of state. No less than three members of the cabinet were on hand to roll out the red carpet for those visiting health workers. Among the others at the welcoming committee were the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Nalidi Pandor, who earlier had reiterated South Africa's commitment to advancing, quote-unquote, the agenda of the South. Along with Pandor were Defense and Military Veterans Minister Nosivwe Mapisa Nakula and Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Dr. Nakozazana Dalimi Zuma. The fanfare around what would normally be a somewhat innocuous event had more of a political rather than a medical overtone. South Africa joined some 22 other nations, including Italy, in welcoming Cuban doctors to help with the coronavirus crisis. This worldwide presence affords Cuba quite an extensive global platform and concomitant influence. As so often happens, the welcome was replete with revolutionary undercurrents and veiled Marxist allusions to the quote-unquote struggle. According to an article in The Citizen of April 27th, headed Western Cape Begrudgingly Accepts Help from Cuban Doctors, Mapiza Nakula opined, quote, The fact that the doctors arrived on Freedom Day was significant, unquote. Alas, what should have been an opportune occasion to reflect on the repression, poverty, lack of freedom, and political intolerance in Cuba was supplanted by the standard eulogizing and platitudes. The Citizen article further noted, quote, The arrival of Cuban medical experts was a response to a request by President Ramaphosa to his Cuban counterpart, Diaz-Canal Bermudez. The president said that the group comprised epidemiology, biostatistics, and public health workers, family physicians, healthcare technology engineers, and medical experts. The family physicians were expected to guide processes in door-to-door testing and to assist local health workers in health promotion and disease surveillance at the community level, unquote. However, not everyone viewed the Cubans' arrival with the same rapture. Seemingly, there was little, if any, consultation with the local medical establishment, allowing one to conclude that such omission points to a political, not a medical, decision. Times Live, April 28th, in an article headed, Bringing in Cuban Doctors is Premature, According to the Medical Association, reveals a little disconcerting statement under the surface. Quote, The South African Medical Association says that the arrival of over 200 medical specialists from Cuba is a little bit premature, unquote. 
So far, we have managed quite well without help, Medical Association Chairperson Dr. Angelique Cotizzi said on the SAFM Sunrise Show with Stephen Grutz. Quetzi added that, quote, There are many retired doctors in the country who could have played a key role in mentoring younger doctors during the outbreak. Only when you have exhausted all your internal resources, then it could be prudent to get people from the outside in. We are not unhappy that there are doctors coming in. We just say that it is premature and that we must first look at our own resources and look at our own people. It is quite a lot of money, and we could probably have spent that money a little bit better. Unquote. Also expressing misgivings in a news article of April 27th headlined, Nursing Union Raises Concerns Following Arrival of Cuban Doctors, the Democratic Nursing Organization of South Africa lamented that, quote, the arrival of Cuban health professionals can be unpatriotic while South African nurses are unemployed, unquote. Nursing Organization President Simon Lungwani, in an interview on Radio 702, said that there are many nurse vacancies in South Africa that shouldn't necessarily be there during a global pandemic. Lungwani explained that the deployment of over 200 Cuban doctors would not be all that helpful if trained healthcare professionals in South Africa remain unemployed. Lungwani further listed the numbers of unemployed professional nurses, along with the huge number of applicants received for advertised positions in the Department of Health. According to a report on News 24, April 29th, headed, South Africa spent at least 400 million rand, about $25 million, on Cuban Medical Brigade deployment. Kevin Halama, spokesperson for the Health and Other Services Personnel Trade Union of South Africa, said that while they welcomed the Cuban Medical Brigade's assistance in South Africa, they felt that they should have been consulted first. Quote, We welcome any help from outside the country and from partners of governments to assist with this pandemic. But obviously, there needs to be due consultation that is done with all the health bodies, Halama stated. He added that for unemployed health professionals in South Africa, this would be a quote-unquote bitter pill to swallow, especially because of the cost attached. Quote, it is quite a depressing situation where government goes ahead and takes directions like this, especially in a country like ours, where we know that there are quite a lot of unemployed health professionals sitting at home, unquote. The April 28th edition of the Sawetan, voicing a popular concern in What's the Price of Cuban Help?, quotes Health Minister Zwili Maizi, The advantage of Cuba is that they are a community health model, one that we would like to use, unquote. The facts do not support such a conclusion. The Cuban health system is mired in controversy and evidently in serious trouble. Not even Fidel Castro trusted the system. He preferred to go to Spain for his health care needs. Many observers dismiss the much ballyhooed hype around the Cuban health system. One cannot trust the comparisons and statistics issuing from a repressive communist regime. This is borne out quite clearly in a recent study by the Cato Institute, which found, quote, that Cuba's seemingly impressive health performance is partly due to data manipulation and coercion, unquote. The article compares a number of countries and shows how other nations, without any quote-unquote revolution, achieved impressive and much greater achievements. The title of an article by the Foundation for Economic Education, January 23, 2019, says it all. The Myth of Cuba's Glorious Healthcare System. 
The article pulls no punches in debunking many of the regime's health care quote-unquote accomplishments, including supposed successes in infant mortality, an area of discussion that must be considered useless due to the existence of liberal abortion legislation. Quoting liberally from many studies, the article recalls a National Review study on Cuba by Jade Nordlinger, quote, The left has always had a deep psychological need to believe in the myth of Cuban health care. On that island, as everywhere else, communism has turned out to be a disaster, economic, political, and moral. Not only have persecution, torture, and murder been routine, there is nothing material to show for it. Unquote. He notes the existence of three tiers of health care in Cuba. The first is known as medical tourism. Foreigners travel to Cuba and pay in hard currency for specialized medical care. The second health care system is for Cuban leaders from the party, the military, official artists, and writers. Finally, there is the real Cuban system of the ordinary people, and that is wretched. Testimony and documentation abound. Hospitals and clinics are falling apart. Conditions are so unsanitary that patients are better off at home. All these hospital patients must bring their own bedsheets, soap, towels, food, and even toilet paper. Basic medications are scarce. All the equipment is either old or non-existent. One of the conclusions reached amongst the many research papers quoted in the article offers this insight, quote, One of the most readily apparent problems with the healthcare system in Cuba is the severe shortage of medicines, equipment, and other supplies. Many Cubans, including many health professionals, also had serious complaints about the intrusion of politics into medical treatment and healthcare decision-making, unquote. Another paper makes the case for a more in-depth analysis of the so-called successes of the Cuban health model with the following assertion, quote, The role of Cuban economic and political oppression in coercing good health outcomes merits further study, unquote. The Adam Smith Institute, September 12, 2019, also carried a realistic evaluation with some comments by Cuban journalist and academic Boris Gonzalez Arenas in a piece titled The Myth of Cuban Healthcare. He claims that, quote, it's really important for the Cuban government to hide the real situation in Cuban health. There has been a massive decrease in the number of hospitals in Cuba in the last 20 years, and that hospital staff often steal from hospitals to sell medication on the black market. Unquote. The dismal state of healthcare in Cuba leads one to believe that there is much more than humanitarianism, solidarity, or quote unquote socialist largesse at play with the Cuban mission to South Africa. Indeed, Cuba utilizes this massive medical export as a kind of quote unquote doctor's diplomacy, where the regime makes ample political capital out of its army of doctors to curry favor, lessen isolation, and gain sympathy and prestige across the globe, thus minimizing any scrutiny of its appalling human rights record and socioeconomic conditions. The regime also accrues economic capital from these medical missions. A case study is Brazil, where the left-wing Lula government invited thousands of medical practitioners to Brazil. With the recent souring of this relationship and their recall by Cuba, some 2,000 of the odd 8,000 maneuvered to stay in Brazil. 
Their withdrawal from Brazil came in the wake of the Brazilian government questioning their medical proficiency, as well as the repetitive accusation against Cuba that their doctors were akin to, quote-unquote, slave labor, receiving only a 25% portion of their salaries from the Cuban regime. Cuba has the highest per capita number of doctors in the world, and it uses this skewed statistic greatly to its advantage. The medical expeditioners constitute the biggest generators of vital foreign exchange for the government, raking in an annual $11 billion. It is Cuba's main and most lucrative export, and the Cuban government levies the salaries of the doctors on the host country, so it is clear who is benefiting. The doctors receive a small portion of, quote-unquote, their salaries. Wherever they are serving, they are often dogged by diverse problems, which are mostly related to dissatisfaction with their employment conditions. In an extensive BBC report of May 14, 2019, titled The Hidden World of the Doctors Cuba Sends Overseas, the experiences of numerous Cuban medical orderlies serving in foreign destinations were featured. The article cited a report by the opposition-linked Cuban Prisoners Defenders based on the direct testimony of Cuban doctors in overseas medical missions. The report's authors found that 89% said they had no prior knowledge of where they would be posted. 41% said Cuban officials took their passports on arrival in the host country. And 91% said they were watched over by Cuban security officials while they were on their mission. Communist Cuba is hardly a model for South Africa in any field. It suffers under a military dictatorship. Political repression is endemic. Democracy is non-existent. There is no free press, free assembly, free elections, or rule of law. Religious freedom is gravely restricted. Sixty years of socialism have reduced Cuba to basket cake status, a veritable prison island, serial human rights abuser, and public health disaster. It is hard to see what Cuba has to offer South Africa. South Africans would do well to critically assess all the hype and glamour that often accompanies references to this failed state, and be wary of a country with such a checkered past and dismal human rights record. Due to Cuba being the main beneficiary of this arrangement, they ought to question what sort of expertise the Cubans will be sharing and under what onerous conditions they will be operating. With so many unemployed locals crying out for work in a depressed economy, does it make sense to spend so much which will simply be to bolster a failed regime? Do these doctors have other roles beyond those of goodwill medical ambassadors? Finally, it is strange indeed that the Cuban involvement entered so seamlessly into the coronavirus crisis. The virus seems to have ably lent itself to Cuba's mission of exporting its revolution all over the world. End of The Mysterious Arrival of Cuban Doctors in South Africa by Bernard Tuffin Of course, the plight of Cuba is an old story. Edwin Benson recapped many elements of this tragic socialist misadventure in his story, Cuba's Ugly Socialism Leads to Misery and Tragic Suffering, originally published on www.tfp.org on January 4, 2019. January 1, 1959 was a big day in Havana. President Fulgencio Batista had been overthrown the night before. The victorious rebels under Fidel Castro marched through the streets. Joyful crowds surrounded the marchers. Unfortunately, 
They could not foresee the misery that would visit them in the future. However, some people were uneasy. While the Cuban mob was cheering in the streets, those who had something to lose, even small properties, were less enraptured. For someone so public, Fidel Castro was an enigma. The son of a plantation owner and educated by the Jesuits, he was full of fiery rhetoric about freedom, but said little specific about his politics or his plans for the future. He was careful to hide his Marxist convictions. In April 1959, Fidel Castro spent 11 days visiting the United States. He had a three-hour meeting with Vice President Nixon. He laid a wreath at the Lincoln Memorial. He spoke to the National Press Club in heavily accented, albeit fluent, English. Less than a year later, he signed a joint trade agreement between Cuba and the USSR, which set the stage for an eventual alliance with the communists. Like many other Cubans, Felix and Gregorina Alfonso looked on the deteriorating situation with concern and then alarm. Senor Alfonso was a builder. He worked for others, but he had also built a comfortable and spacious home for his large family and an apartment building. Photos show a comfortable stucco house built around a spacious courtyard. Soon after Castro's pact with the communists, the government took over the apartment building. Not long after that, the second floor of the Alfonso home was allocated to another family. On August 4, 1961, his recently married daughter, Olga, managed to come to the United States with her husband, Enrique. Hopefully listeners will pardon this personal reference. Your narrator knows this story well because he married Olga and Enrique's daughter. My wife never met her grandfather, even though he was still alive at the time of our wedding. Occasionally, my mother-in-law would send her father supplies and medicines, but they never saw each other again. The Castro regime eventually took over everything. Many Cubans simply left and started their lives over again. For those left behind, life continued under the watchful eyes of members of, quote-unquote, the committee. One of these civilian watchdogs lived in each block in Havana, reporting on the activities of their neighbors in return for a better ration of food, clothing, and housing. When the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991, many thought that the Castro government would fall quickly. Many Miami-area Cuban exiles went to their safety deposit boxes and re-examined yellowing deeds, wills, and birth certificates so that they could be ready to reclaim their family property after Castro was removed. But Castro did not fall. Those who wanted his overthrow most, it appeared, were in Miami. Cunningly, Fidel Castro had managed to export those of his enemies that he did not imprison. In December 2014, President Obama announced the quote-unquote normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba. The president said that the move would benefit both peoples. Many were not convinced. The New York Times quoted Florida Senator Marco Rubio, whose parents were Cuban exiles. This entire policy shift announced today is based on an illusion, on a lie. The lie and the illusion that more commerce and access to money and goods will translate to political freedom for the Cuban people, unquote. The media generally presented such objections as throwbacks to the outdated mentality of the Cold War. The far left had pushed for such a move for decades. President Obama was determined to give it to them. Since such diplomatic moves were under the executive branch, the president's will prevailed. 
Overnight, Cuban tourism boomed. Historical societies, architecture fanciers, university study groups, antique car clubs, and others rushed to satisfy their curiosity about this isolated country less than 90 miles from Florida. The government and the media guaranteed that such tourism would speed the improvement of life in Cuba. It would create jobs in hotels and restaurants. Cubans would see the prosperity of visiting Americans and demand improvements of their own. Left unsaid was the fact that American tourist dollars only buttressed the communists by propping up their faltering economy. Life in Cuba continues to be wretched. Even the budding American socialists know enough not to point to Cuba as a success story. A recent article from USA Today shows how bad things are. Havana is falling apart. This last sentence is not hyperbole. It is a literal fact. Thousands of buildings of Havana are actually falling down, sometimes with people inside of them. The article showed, for example, how the old Hotel Astor that operated in Havana before the revolution is decaying. Today, 28,000 people live in the nine-story building. Inside, daylight can be seen through cracks in the exterior walls. In 2017, a third-floor stairway collapsed, stranding people on the upper floors until a makeshift stairway could be built. In the meantime, the government sent in a truck with a crane to deliver food to residents. People continue to live in dilapidated buildings because the government cannot build more for its expanding population. One estimate is that Havana had some 206,000 people needing homes in 2016. The deterioration is emblematic of why socialism fails everywhere. Without owners, no one takes responsibility to keep housing in good repair. Presumably, the government does this, but no one can hold the government responsible. Among the 206,000 needing homes is baker Rafael Alvarez. In 2015, he lived in a second-floor apartment of a building that collapsed. Alvarez's spine was fractured in three places. His wife was in a coma for 22 days after falling headfirst into the rubble. His daughter, mother, and nephew died. The previous day, workers had been using a jackhammer to remove plaster on the first floor. The authorities told Alvarez that there was not enough evidence to prosecute anyone. Alvarez's story should concern anyone who favors the socialized one-payer system of providing health care. Huge sectors of the population are living in crowded, substandard housing. People are dying by living in these places. And no one seems to care. This is the end of Cuba, the myth, the reality, and the coronavirus. Thank you so much for listening. In print, Mr. Tuffin's article is extensively footnoted. To read this or to find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order to be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T.F.P.